really want to pick your brain on meaning and purpose, especially as mm. it's evolved for you over your lifetime. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Happy, happy to be chatting with you. And uh, for the folks who are listening to this, Bowen is, he's a fellow writer on Substack. Uh, he writes what I think are some of the most authentic and interesting posts that clearly come from a place of lived experience. You know, this isn't textbook knowledge. This is the stuff you earn, sometimes the easy way, sometimes the hard way. And, and so I appreciate his writing and all the work that he's doing. And, and he and I are both sort of embarking on this process of becoming writers, turning that into a central part of our daily experience. And so uh, that's who Bowen is. Bowen, I don't know if there's any more you want to share in terms of your background and context before we jump into the simple questions of meaning and purpose. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah, great to be here again with you. And, um, you know, you are one of many people at this point that I have come, you know, into contact with that I have met through writing. Um, and, you know, it struck me recently that that's really one of the one of the signs of, you know, being something. People say, well, how do you know if you're really a, uh, you know, a plumber? Well, if most of the people that you meet are people that you meet through plumbing, then <laughs> it's a pretty good sign you're a plumber, <laughs> let's just say. And, uh, you know, when you, you and I share a history of having a past career in, uh, you know, technology, what's broadly called technology, whatever, in the software industry, that sort of thing. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, now I find that and quite purposefully that my career is writing, you know, I made a choice to embark upon a, a third career really for myself of that. And, and so again, I'm meeting lots of people through that world. It's amazing and a, a great joy really. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, you know, we've got all sorts of past. I'm sure we'll touch on that here and there, but writing is what it's all about these days. And uh yeah, Substack, and I also have a memoir in progress, which I uh, do share um, on the Substack as well, and uh, be finishing that manuscript this summer and uh, publishing it thereafter. So, yeah, let's get into it, man. It's exciting, and I'll, and I'll make sure to put some links to your writing in the show notes as well, so that folks can can follow along with you there. Well, on the on the subject of meaning and purpose, uh, let's grease the wheel a little bit with a quote from Terrence McKenna. And uh, good old Terrence, <clears throat> he had a way with words, and uh, he didn't hold back at times, which I appreciated. <laughs> so here's his quote. Uh, he said, where is it writ large that talking monkeys, us, <laughs> should be able to model the cosmos? If a sea urchin or a raccoon were to propose to you that it had a viable truth about the universe, the absurdity of that assertion would be self-evident. But in our own case, we make an exception. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, McKenna. <laughs> yeah, let's just start. I'd, I'd love your reaction to his central point there of, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, it wasn't too long ago. What was it? 400 years ago where we believed we were the center of the universe. Um, and mm. here we are to this day, we've changed some of those fundamental facts or we've uh, 
adopted a new set of understandings about the universe. Nonetheless, uh, there remains this attitude or culture in a lot of humanity that we, we still sort of sit at the center of everything and mm. have all the answers. Uh, Terrence is spitting totally. in the face of that idea. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, I appreciate the quote, first of all, and the reference to McKenna. I haven't read a ton of his and his brother's writing, uh, but a little bit. And, uh, you know, their stories, their adventures in South America, um, <clears throat> just like eating as many different types of psychedelic mushrooms as they could possibly get their hands on uh, for months at a time. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. And, um, you know, a lot of people may not know, but McKenna is, you know, the origin of the stoned ape theory, right? Which, um, you know, uh, statements and uh, Joe Rogan have kind of popularized, right? This idea that, um, you know, apes foraging, apes, so to speak, human predecessors, you know, foraging in the forest, coming across, of course, as they would have, um, you know, all sorts of things, edible things, mushrooms, right? Um, that, of course, they would have come across psychoactive mushrooms. And, you know, there are just so many psychoactive plants. And um, and that that kind of accidental, um, you know, ingestion and psychedelic experience may well have been part of what sparked consciousness itself. This is a fascinating idea and really, kind of, you know, quite plausible, really. Um, <clears throat> so no surprise that you know, McKenna kind of references um, talking monkeys <laughs> in, you know, in this piece that you brought up. And, <clears throat> you know, I mean, what he's saying, I think what he's getting at is like, we're, we, the, you know, we see ourselves at the center of the conscious universe. And, you know, is that kind of, is, is that fair? Is that, is that correct? Um, you know, for one thing, um, I mean, we aren't raccoons or sea urchins <laughs> and, you know, or monkeys for that matter. You know, we only have our own experience as reference. And so no wonder we feel like that is the reference. There's just no other way for it to be. That's part of the nature of human consciousness. Now, is that right or wrong? Is that the fullest view of the universe possible? Well, we don't know. And almost certainly no, right? I mean, so we can hold, like so many other things, you know, both things as being true. That is, we can know that our view of consciousness seems like everything. And yet we can also, we can know at the same time that it's must not be everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, I would just say we, you know, he, he says we make an exception. Well, we make an exception because, well, we are an exception. I, you know, that's another part of the question. Are we really an exception? You know, um, <clears throat> another fellow writer that, <clears throat> that I, excuse me here, uh, that I interviewed recently, Kim Stanley Robinson, who, you know, is known for a multi-decade career as a science fiction writer and 
um, you know, more and and also as as a, just a writer, a novelist, and has also written a lot about culture and about climate change uh, in his most recent book. One of the things he that I learned from him is that see McKenna here is referring to people as animals. Stan refers to animals as people. Hmm. So when he's walking in the high Sierra, you know, he talks about his encounters with sheep people, you know, with four legged people, with the people of the air, right? Birds that is. Um, And he's not, you know, making more of he's not he's not equating you know a bird with a human whatever but just saying hey these are conscious live beings as well that have you know and their experience is also the totality of their experience and that is probably just as infinitely complete as our own mm-hmm. yeah so he's he's not <clears throat> he's not anthropomorphizing them in the way that we like to give lions human names and you know stuff like that, but he's he's acknowledging the uh, the fact that these are conscious organisms. We all have our different modes of experiencing what we call reality, uh, which in it in and of itself brings up an interesting point of of we only experience a sliver of reality, whereas these other organisms experience reality in a different way. And so reality may actually be the composite or the aggregate of all of these different, different forms of sensing the world around us. Um, But we can't say for sure that we're experiencing everything because at a minimum, we don't even have the sense organs to be able to do so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we again, we can say for sure that our own, conscious experience is you know is infinite it it certainly feels that way and you know we can also take or relate to the mathematical concept that an infinity of infinities is larger than a single infinity mm-hmm. and that the infinity of consciousnesses of all of these species you know, plants included, the earth itself, the solar system. I mean, if you expand the concept of consciousness, well, it's certainly far larger than just the human consciousness, mm-hmm. yeah. which is itself vast, isn't it? <laughs> and to build off that and this and Terrence McKenna's quote, the, what it brings to mind to me is the notion of absolute meaning versus relative meaning. So I, I, the way that I interpret McKenna's quote is, is he's trying to point out that we may not have the intellectual ability to fully model the cosmos. As he said, we have enough intellectual ability to be able to model some of it. And, you know, the, the stuff that is within our observable measurable tiny little fragment of the universe in which we reside. And so from that perspective, we develop more relative truths or more relative knowledge that helps give us more relative understanding of meaning and purpose. So we can talk about Hmm. our role in life 
relative to the ecosystem in which we live. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's different than an absolute meaning, which is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the question of what is the meaning and purpose behind all of this that is consistently true for everything and everyone. You know, that, so right. I think of it in terms of absolute versus relative meaning and purpose. And mm. at least where I sit is that uh, for now, because I'm, I'm always open to changing my perspectives, is that I don't think there's an absolute meaning or purpose. And I think it's impossible to ever discover one because mm. of the problem of infinite regress, which mm -hmm. if folks haven't heard of, of a bit before, it's, it's the idea that our search for truth continues in this infinite regression of asking more questions. So for example, mm -hmm. um, folks have probably heard this, uh, this sort of logical series before they'd say, okay, well, let's assume that a God-like creator created everything whether it's a Christian God or a Norse God, it doesn't matter. Just let's assume that a God created everything. And then you ask the question, okay, well, what created the God or what were the circumstances that created the God that created everything? Right. Right. And then it recurses infinitely from there. You say, well, then what created that thing, which created that thing, which created this thing. And the same problem, as far as I can tell exists with, with basically anything, including the other major way of trying to understand the world, which is through a scientific lens, you could say, okay, let's assume the big bang and all the mathematics and the preconditions check out. There was this exploding event that then all of creation that we can observe, uh, was created, but then it, it's the same problem of infinite recursion, which is okay. What created the conditions which, which created that because Mm -hmm. nothing can't create something. Right. And so, so from an absolute stance where I sit for now is that there is no absolute truth, or if there is, it's fundamentally unknowable because of this problem of infinite recursion. And as a result, it's not that we <clears throat> stop trying to model the cosmos and figure it all out because mm -hmm that's something that makes life extremely interesting. And we seem to be equipped with the biological equipment to at least ask those questions. Mm -hmm. um, but the only thing you really can do in a world in which there's no absolute truth is focus on the relative meaning and purpose, which is you kind of flip the question yeah. on its head. Instead of saying, you know, what is the meaning of life? You then flip it over and say, what meaning do I want to give to life? And, and that is the relevant tr or the relative truth. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Thanks. That's, that's a, um, yeah. Fascinating dive into, uh, the, <clears throat> the, the, the philosophy of it there. And, and yeah, I mean, for me, like the, this kind of these like absolute, the question of absolute truth or origin or meaning it, I, yeah, I I I, I kind of lose interest. It's it's it gets abs it's very abstract to me, and disconnected, and yeah, it feels unsolvable. Um, and I think it it it's also one of those things that feels it's where the dualism of the infinite and 
and nothingness, you know, comes together, the, the in, infinite and like nihilism. Cause it, you know, if you're searching for the, the absolute truth, it's like, well, it can only be nothing in a way, <laughs> you know, and it's much more interesting to, you know, just to be in my embodied self. And, you know, we, I am an animal. I live on earth. Um, you know, we, I did evolve from, you know, at, uh, an ape, let's say, or whatever the proper term is, you know, I, I still feel like an animal, you know? And so, yeah, my purpose has to have something to do with that, right? It has to have something to do with my animal self. Mm-hmm. with the reality of being alive and that I'm going to die and that I, you know, walk through the world and eat and drink and excrete and, you know, just need to do things to live and, you know, relate to other people and to the environment around me. Um, and, you know, that, that starts to lead me in the direction of where, you know, where I've kind of landed um, with the question of purpose for myself, um, <clears throat> which I'm, you know, we're slowly meandering towards. Just want to throw in a note too, like as we go along here today, you know, let's, 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 let's find, let's find ways to, you know, let's pull in, you know, let's not stay in the entirely in the philosophical realm, right? And you know, and pull in, as you mentioned, our own lived experience. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with you. It's like I've sat and noodled on this question of the absolute meaning and purpose, and I realized once I arrived at that point of the infinite recursion of things, I said, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to spin my wheels in the mud if I stay in this lane. And it's interesting, if I were a uh, a scientist and philosopher, I might stay in that lane, but I'm not. <laughs> and, yeah. and so the lane I like to stay in is what you suggested is like, give me the practical. Like, you know, the so I was chatting with someone recently and they asked me, like, what is, you know, your, your meaning and purpose? And I said, in, in a generic sense, I believe that one relative form of truth for meaning and purpose for everyone is to just know what you are and then be what you are Mm -hmm. and sort of building on your point. Like when I started to go through that inventory of like, okay, something put me here beyond my own control and my own free will. I came into this world made in a certain way with a certain composition within a certain culture and within a legacy that conditioned me in other ways. So like, let me just understand what the hell I am Mm -hmm. and let me just go from there. If I don't know what I am, it's hard to make sense of anything. If you're going through life in a way that is inconsistent with what you are. So maybe we can, I don't know, maybe that's a good Mm -hmm. way of grounding it and starting there is like, we are animals. Okay. What does that imply? Mm. What does that tell us about the meaning and purpose of life is one of those mm. certainly for survival. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what that brings up for me is the connection between identity and purpose. And, mm. you know, 
not you know in the abstract, but in the in in my personal experience, um, or or both. But in my personal experience, what I mean is that you know I was much more troubled by a feeling of lack of purpose when when I. It, it, when I did not have much of a sense of who I was. And as, you know, over the years, I came to feel more of a sense of self um, and a sense of, you know, security and groundedness um, in, in, again, in my own identity, which is something that we all have to establish somewhere along the way, you know, and some of us like myself, it takes a lot longer than others. And, you know, but in any case, without that, it's very hard. Like, as you said, be kind of be your something, I paraphrase, be yourself. And, you know, really the way I express one way to express purpose for me is what I'm here to do is to be myself as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, you know, was a phrase that came to me of its own accord, but it also goes, uh, I mean, it, it, it occurs in the writings of many, many others, including Carl Jung, for example. Uh, you know, he was just such a, you know, both a collector and a source of, <clears throat> kind of, of, of aggregate wisdom mm-hmm. and, you know, he said the only meaningful life is a life that strives for the individual realization. Mm-hmm. Now, not to say it's only just about the individual, but I feel that, you know, I'm echoing those words and saying, yeah, I'm here to be myself as much as possible. But if I don't know what myself is, mm-hmm. how am I supposed to do that? Mm-hmm. Right. And so as the self emerges, at least the possibility of feeling something like purpose emerges. Now we still get to the end, the question of what is this purpose thing, which is a fascinating, a uh, fascinating question. But as for me, those two things, identity and purpose are very, very closely tied together. Yeah. Yeah. And related to that, one of my favorite quotes from, from Jung is, so the world will ask you who you are. And if you don't know, it'll tell you. Right. And the, the, the point he's, at least I, I believe he's making there and, and to connect it to your point of identity is that if you don't know who you are, well, guess what? You grow up in a culture and a civilization that will shape you into what that culture and civilization wants you to be or believes you to be. And that really gets to one of the fundamental conflicts between basically fitting in and being who you are. And Mm -hmm. uh, Gabor Mate, he speaks about this really well for folks who don't know. He's a a, really an expert on trauma is the way that I would frame it. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, he he frames it in the sense of, you know, you're born into the world. You You don't even have any choice into the world you're born into the environment you're born into sort of shapes you and conforms you a lot. But then you also receive these pressures from that environment, from basically all the adults in the world, starting with your own parents and then into your teachers and so on, telling you, hey, this is the way to act, or these are the careers that are lucrative that you should pursue, or Mm -hmm. don't dress like this, dress like that. And 
And as a kid, you're so terrified of the concept or the idea of being ostracized and being alone because mm -hmm. we are that an animal. Specifically, we're a male yeah. with deep needs around connection. We're right. so afraid of being cast aside that then what most people do is mm -hmm. they sacrifice their individual sense of self and mm -hmm. form in order to be accepted into the group because the fear of being alone is too great. And for me, my journey mm. into finding a new sense of purpose today and to the point that you raised, it's really connected to a sense of identity mm. is that, you know, the last couple of years for me has been this transformation of identity where I realized that, hey, sure, I did all these things that on paper look good and that I'm, I'm happy I did. It, it provided a a relatively comfortable life for me. And I was, you know, because of my professional success and all that was tied up in my sense of identity. But when I realized, you know what, that, like, that's not actually me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, Andy, the successful tech guy was a byproduct of my early life circumstances and the environment that I grew up in. But that's different from who do I feel like I'm like? And, <laughs> and so the last few years has been this process of basically unwinding that old identity. Yeah. And then upon doing so, immediately feeling this terrible existential loss of purpose uh, because mm. my purpose and my meaning of achievement and success was so closely attached to the old identity. So anyhow, now mm -hmm. that I'm mm -hmm. going down sure. this new path of, of sort of writer, mental health advocate, you know, solo entrepreneur and rebuilding my sense of self. I'm also developing a new sense of meaning and purpose that comes along with it. Yeah, I, I feel you for sure. Um, two things, you know, come up for me. One is what you mentioned about kind of the nature of the human animal and, you know, our, our fear of being um, left out of the tribe and, at the same time, so many of us, and myself included, you know, the, the actually for me, the stronger drive was to be different, right? Was to be unique. Hmm. And these two things are in kind of in direct opposition, right? Because if you succeed at being different from everybody, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, A, we all are intrinsically different from everybody. So it's a bit of a false quest. And also, then in more practical terms, you know, if you insist on not following anything that anyone else does and kind of rejecting all ideas, because, you, you know, this kind of gets taken to an extreme, and I, I did, well, there isn't much left to do or be. Um, and, you know, it kind of prevents you from absorbing uh, wisdom, from learning from others, from, you know, following can be a great thing to do. Um, and you know, that also took me in the direction of leading a lot and, you know, which is a very Western kind of successful thing to do, but you know what? I got fucking tired of leading <laughs> for just, I mean, just among lots of other things, I, I got so tired of leading kind of everything. I'm not, you know, patting myself on the back here. I'm just saying that that was kind of my default mode because I didn't want to follow anyone else. And 
because I did kind of put myself outside of a, like most other circles or communities or whatever, <clears throat> you know, I tried to even unconsciously create, you know, environments for myself and, and ended up creating and, you know, th uh, environments, communities for others as well. It was the whole business that I created was a community that served other people. Right. But I wasn't, you know, by the time I created that, I wasn't really a member of it myself mm -hmm. uh, to the point about, you know, it goes, it goes back to the point about identity. So um, <clears throat> these opposing drives, right, to be part of something and yet to be unique. It's, you know, it's a bit of a paradox that is, is tricky to resolve. Um, and I think, <clears throat> you know, the resolution there can only really come from like doing self more, <laughs> you know, actually, and how does, you know, okay, be yourself as much as possible. Well, how, if I don't know how that used to be my complaint, how do I do myself, be myself more if I don't know what I am, <laughs> right. you know, right. This sort of circular it, argument that's frustrating as hell. It's very, it can be very frustrating and, and it is. And the root of that for me and, and, you know, no surprise that that's a very common frustration. Many, many, many of us do not know really who we are or how to be ourselves because we haven't really cultivated the ability to feel that, mm -hmm. to feel that. I, I want to focus on that word, feel it, too, because... <clears throat> I would love to get your thoughts on why you use the word feel it as opposed to thank it, because yeah, I know that my early tendency when I was going through the same process of saying like, wait, so if I'm not this Andy tech guy, who the fuck am I? Yeah. <laughs> like, and let me think my way through this problem as if it were an intellectual problem to certain right. solve and I eventually realized like, whoa, 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 no, that trying to use the mind to think my way through understanding who I am, it's mm -hmm. not that the mind can't be used at all, but if you only use that as the tool, you're most certainly not going to get the answer. And so, and yeah, I mean, Jaron Lanier wrote this great book, you are not a gadget, right? And I would just say, you are, neither are you a list. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, because when I tried to solve that question, you know, with the, my intellectual self, I, I came up with a list, you know, here's all the things that I like, here's all the things that I am, here's all the things that I've done, you know, here's the things that I want to do. It's a list. And for fuck's sakes, like, I am not a list. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, that didn't, did not feel very interesting you know, or satisfying. Didn't feel very satisfying. Yeah. Um, Cause then you, so that, then you just end up with a kind of like a, a pros and cons list of like, well, this was the old me and this is the new one. Which one do I want to take and swap? And that's not, that's not. No, no, no. So, you know, you asked about, this word, you know, feel about feeling and why I said, you know, that, well, I had to develop the capacity to feel more of who I was. And 
I could just, you know, we can just reduce that. I had to develop the capacity to feel more um, and to know myself more. Um, and, you know, I, I knew that I did not know myself very well. And I knew that I did not, that I, that, that I didn't have, that I lacked some capacity to feel in a way. I don't mean emotional feeling. Um, I mean, a sensing of the, the sense the sensing of, of the, of what was right for what's right for me what direction here and, and here's another key piece feel this kind of feeling is about movement for me it's about how to move through the world mm-hmm. um and for me the you know one of my biggest one of the most important moments in my life really was a and and um and an, an epiphany let's say a momentary uh moment of uh, minor enlightenment that happened while i was out trail running okay where and i at this point i you know i was in my mid 40s i didn't start running until i was 40 or so and um <clears throat> You know, there's some downsides to that. Perhaps one of the upsides is that I didn't blow out my knees, you know, early in life. So now I'm 53 and I can still run. Um, but I was out trail running and, and um, <clears throat> I, you know, I had this moment of observing, of seeing myself, seeing myself kind of zoomed out just a little bit. I mean, this was not conscious. It just, I just kind of, you know, I was comfortable enough doing what I was doing that I, Zoomed out a little bit. I just saw myself going down the trail and I saw how my feet and legs were moving in an intuitive fashion, right? It's not automatic. It's not entirely automatic, but neither is it a conscious process. You're not placing each footstep. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you do have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an intuitive process. It lies between the instinctive and the conscious. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I had this, uh, without stopping, I was still running, and I, it, it occurred to me that that's what intuition is. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Movement. Movement and knowing how and where to move in the moment for yourself in a continuous flow, like without stopping to consider, at least in this example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I mean by this feeling. It has to do with movement and the feeling. So when I say like I had to learn how to feel myself more, what I mean is I had to learn how to feel where my, where the organism wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Right. I had, to, I had to learn how to feel that. And, and part of that, just to add one more little thing is like, and this even occurred in that moment in that, as I explained, I was, I was kind of observing myself in the wild. 
right? I, I got, I had a little distance there from, you know, the physical experience of running. I could see myself. And that's what kind of in, allowed me to see how this, you know, how this, uh, you know, gain this insight. And so, um, you know, then it comes back to, you know, it, 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 it's, of course, it's very simple in a way. It's like, well, learning how to feel where, yeah, what, what direction the body wants to move in. Mm-hmm. And it often does come down to that, the, literally, the body. Um, and, and sometimes I use that as an exercise if I'm, you know, quote, trying to decide something. I will mm, let my body move and feel which way it pulls me. I'm serious. Left, right, you know, driving around. I don't know whether to go here or there. Well, just kind of tune out, forget about it for a minute. And whoops, oh, I just turned left. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going that way, you know. <laughs> yeah. I know. So there's a lot more to say, but that's kind of the beginning of it. I can uh I can really relate with that. Uh especially being uh a man whose majority of his life was built on intellectual capabilities <clears throat> and the broader conditioning around like I wasn't really taught too much or instructed around, you know, be a feeling organism. It was like a thinking organism. And the a couple notes. One is I know that feeling of gliding as you Mm. make your way Mm. through a mountain. Um, When I go back to the trail running and the ultra marathons I did in my 20s, you know, Mm. I had buddies who were, uh, you know, getting ready to go out to bars on Fridays and Saturday nights. And there was a, a long period of time where I would occasionally join them. But most of the time, I sometimes I'd just drive them and drop them off because the thing I was excited for was to get up in the morning the next morning and head to the trails in the Santa Cruz Mountains and go on a four or five hour run. Which, yeah. Which sounded crazy. And I, I couldn't explain <clears throat> why that was so appealing to me, but it was one of the first experiences in my life where I felt that sense of flow and yes. people had asked, don't you get bored? Do you listen to music? And my answer was <laughs> no, like, yeah. I, I could be out there for four or five hours, not seeing a single mm-hmm. soul and run, you know, 15, 20 miles up in the mountains. And it wasn't boring as the last word or sensation that came to mind. It was the sense yeah. of connection and just, when you find that flow where you realize you're moving on this trail and to your point, you're not calculating every step, even though there's rocks and roots and this and that, yeah, you're allowing yourself to really kind of go with the bend and to go with the ups and the downs and, and you find your groove. And the next thing you know, you're barely even breathing and right. it's a form of moving meditation. So that, that, that's the first thing that, taught me that sense of feeling this the second was actually in a, a, a pretty profound experience i had working with a uh, shaman who uses plant medicines again i know people talk about this shit all the time i'm not trying to glorify them uh, i don't think they're for everyone uh, yeah same yeah but uh you know it, th- 
one of the things that was beautiful about it is the the day after the experience and sitting and speaking with the shaman, he shared a quick anecdote, a little bit of a metaphor, which has now become a central part of my process of feeling my way through life is, mm -hmm. is in talking about what these medicines do <clears throat> and the ultimate message that they can deliver. He said, Hey, you know, have you ever gone, uh, whitewater rafting? And mm -hmm. I said, no. And he said, well, if you do, you know, the, the guides will give you a bit of an instruction beforehand. They'll say, here's how you hold the paddle. And this is what right. you sit in the boat. But one of the things they'll instruct you on is they'll say, what do you do if you get thrown overboard? Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's a really important lesson because what most people do when they get thrown overboard is they freak out. And then they struggle and they exhaust a lot of energy trying to fight the current. And yeah. that's when you really get in trouble is when you're trying to fight something that you're incapable of defeating. Mm -hmm. And so the thing he said is when you get thrown overboard, you kind of lay back in mummy position. You put your feet out in front of you, you lay back, right. hands over your chest. And the reason you do that is the river knows where it wants to go. It's been carving that path for a long, long time. And yeah. if you just go with it, it'll bring you around the rocks and the gullies and the branches and what have you. And then eventually you'll mm -hmm. see a point where it's very clear that with little effort, you can swim ashore or you can find a safe place. Eddie out. And this is the point he was trying to convey is that through these plant medicines, one of the ultimate lessons that you might receive so long as you're receptive to it is this message mm -hmm. of surrender and surrender mm -hmm. doesn't mean to give up and not try surrender means what you said bowen which is surrender to the current that is around you and and by surrendering to it that means really sit and pay attention and start to develop that feel yeah for where life is suggesting you should go yeah. And, and that just takes time and practice and paying attention. And there, there's no master playbook that I could write up around. Here's how you develop a feel for life other than to say, let me be present and let me really pay attention to these nudges that I seem to be getting going all the way mm -hmm. back to the earlier parts of my life. Where is the river trying to take me? And if yes. I start to feel that and I just mm -hmm. let go and say, okay, river, do your part that's when you're going to find that path of least, least resistance in life. That's when it's going to feel like it's going to start to flow and it'll take you to a point of meaning and purpose that it's been trying to take you to. Okay. I'll shut Yeah, up. man. No, I love it. Um, the, the river, uh, a couple of things. One is you just said about the sort of playbook. Well, I, I did write a playbook on that, so to speak. I, 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 well, uh, you know, I've written a lot about in, in, intuition and this really it's the, the, the sensing. Uh, there's a lot of ways to, to define or talk about what intuition is. But one of many is, let's say, a, an ability to feel the shapes and patterns of the world. And how you fit into navigate those shapes and patterns, right? That's like being in the flow, as you described it, being in the river, right? Working with the shape 
and the pattern, the movement of the river as opposed to trying to work against it. What you can only do, though, is if if you have some, you know, if you kind of or you can certainly do better if you have cultivated cultivated an ability to sense those shapes and patterns. Right. If you have some familiarity, some practice at that. Um, so <clears throat> that is um, I do have a great a long post about uh, sort of how to cultivate that sensibility. And, you know, like. Um, many other things, you know, really like everything is a practice, right? We get good at what we do mm -hmm. and you can get good. You can get better at intuition. You can get better at sensing the shapes and patterns of the world. How really just by doing it more mm -hmm. by paying attention, by practice. You can also kind of think of it as a sport. Because that is what a sport is, is really just something that we practice um, that combines a physical and, uh, you know, other elements. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was, well, in any case, yeah, something that we can practice, we can practice and get better at. Mm -hmm. um, and... Well, two other little notes that just came up, you know, in our in our in that piece there. One is, well, you know, we we we're both men, and we start off talking about feeling, right? And this, how you know, <clears throat> often if like if I said, like I said at the very beginning, you know, that I had to sort of cultivate an ability to feel more. One of the cliches that comes up is like, oh, well, you're a man, you know, you, yeah, you really do need to cultivate an ability to feel more <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because, you know, men, you know, are just less emotional. Mm -hmm. First of all, bullshit. That is just incorrect. And it's incorrect in a very specific way. It's, it's not, it may not be incorrect circumstantially that, kind of today on average, or let's not even say today, let's say two or three decades ago, perhaps on average, you know, more men were kind of less in touch with their emotions than women in just the broadest terms. I'm, I'm reluctant to even repeat that because I just see it as something that may have been the case at some point, And I, I just don't like to refer to the past as true as it may have been, or even still be in some way. But the point is that that, however much it may have been true or not, is not because we are men. It's not because of our maleness. It's because of the acculturation of men. Okay, now this is, I've gone a bit of a tangent here, but it's an important connection, you know, because men women, people of all shapes and sizes are just as capable of emotionality as, as any others. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, there's no difference there. <clears throat> Something though, that I have found in my own experience that has helped me to connect more to myself. And I, I don't know, you know, whether this has to do with being a man or not is what we've been talking about is thinking is the feeling in a more concrete sense, Right is that if I can learn and kind of practice to feel myself more, 
in the context of literally my physical environment and in particular in nature where I can actually sense the shapes and patterns of the world that I am immersed in, right? The more that I cultivate that sensibility, the more of a foundation that is to my sort of higher sensing, which includes my emotional, my emotions, my, my feelings, my sort of higher level feelings and, you know, my intellectual processes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's beyond just, am I in touch with feeling happy or sad? It's, am I in touch with, am I flowing in a direction that seems to be appropriate for me or not? And that is, that it, th those are, there are some overlapping attributes for it, at least the way I think of it, but like, those are separate things in a sense. Yeah. And also just how does my body feel? Mm-hmm. Right. How does my body feel? How does my body feel here where I am right now? How does my body want to feel? What would make, what would I feel better if I was doing or if, you know, um, all of those things are, are underlie our emotional selves. And I, I don't know that there's a real way. I don't know for me to, to get to a, a greater emotional depth without this kind of foundation in the, the felt sense of the body. Mm. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I love about being in the presence of animals is, uh, they, their intuition of what is safe versus not a safe environment or mm -hmm. who they want yeah. to be around versus who they don't. So for example, <clears throat> I was, uh, September of last year, I spent a few weeks in the North of Thailand doing some volunteer work at a, uh, an animal sanctuary, mm -hmm. bring in, uh, abused and maltreated animals and rehabilitate them and give them a nice mm. life. And wow. the centerpiece of that experience were elephants. It, it's, hmm. it's arguably the, the most esteemed elephant rescue sanctuary in the world and truly wow. truly special special individuals that run that place and mm. um one part of of sort of raising and taking care of an elephant is is there's a formal position known as a mahout in thai culture and and i believe in in uh the other cultures around that area as well and the mahout is basically the, the sort of caretaker uh, and mahouts are matched one-to-one -one from a mahout to an elephant. Mm -hmm. And when they bring in these new elephants, you know, again, they're coming usually from pretty bad backgrounds. They've been abused in sort of circuses and so on and so forth. And so they'll bring in this animal that's been both physically and psychologically uh, damaged. And so they have to be very careful and, and slow and patient and, when it comes to that process of mapping a mahout to an elephant, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my sense was, well, you can't force that <laughs> on an elephant mm -hmm. any way you can force it on a dog. And the elephant's going to just either have a good sense of the person or it's not. And so I asked the person running the place, I said, how do you pair a mahout to an elephant? And he said, we let the elephants pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know, the mahouts will be standing there. It's almost like blind dating. And 
an uh-huh. elephant comes up and for whatever reason, you know, an elephant may look at one person and be like, oh, hell no. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that guy. Ears flat forward and sort of lift up and you know it's taking an aggressive posture. And then right. another one, it just turns into into butter. And they just, <laughs> yeah. and you know, we, that, that's one of the reasons I, I love being around animals is because it's a good reminder mm. and a demonstration to me all the time of they are in touch with that intuitive feeling and they allow it to take center stage in how they live. And yeah, and you can, and you can see that like when an animal knows or feels that it's in an environment that is, it does not want to be in, it will have all sorts of dysfunctional behaviors as a result. And, and it's easy to say, oh, this is a poorly trained animal. And it's like, no, nah, no, you may be yeah. forcing it into the completely wrong environment. And this, and it knows it and it feels it and it doesn't like it. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, man. Well, and a lot of us are living in environments that are, hmm. you know, contrary to our nature. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother topic. But, um, you know, this question of, purpose, um, it it does relate to that because there's no wonder that there's so many of us that are plagued by this feeling of a lack of purpose or plagued by the question of purpose. You know, what's my purpose? What, if only I knew, I used to say this all the time, you know, well, well, you're so lucky, you know, you just knew what you wanted to be, you know, whatever. If, If I just knew I would, you know, well, yeah, well then I would do it. Right. Um, the environment, you know, that most of us grow up in the kind of urban Western, you know, um, school and then work environment, it, it's not condu- conducive. It's not conducive to developing a sense of self mm. or a sense of purpose. No. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's designed, you know, <clears throat> I mean, again, this is a bit of a, another direction, but it, it's designed for the opposite. You know, it was designed to create factory workers um, with and soldiers. Yeah, in a large, uh, fast-growing economy. Yeah, which you know, which are you don't want people with a sense of individual identity and purpose. <laughs> um, so again, no wonder, no wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we could go back to you know purpose again, perhaps, and and you know the the question of kind of how. Because we do want that. Mm-hmm. We do want a feeling of, you know, whether you call it purpose or direction or movement or purposeful movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we want that. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes sense to want that. And we, 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 can, we can develop that even in the screwed up environment mm-hmm. that we, you know, most of us live in. Yeah, and... and- Victor Frankel, he was, you know, he spoke a lot about this point of the existential vacuum that, you know, Mm -hmm. called it. And, and he had some, some straightforward observations on it to connect to this point of meaning and purpose. He said, you know, it's really in the last hundred years or so where Mm -hmm. this existential vacuum has shown up fast Uh and has, has become a really big challenge for civilization and a part of that is because it's kind of removed ourselves from that 
animalistic nature where yeah. so many people derive meaning and purpose simply from the pursuit of survival. Right. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. And, and when all of a sudden we develop these civilizations that account for most of our fundamental needs, especially mm -hmm. around survival for most people, uh, yeah. then all, there you go. Your purpose is gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, so what is my purpose now? And then you blend that in with your point about, or the Western process of producing a standardized set of people to prop up a fast growing economy that does not nurture these questions of who am I and what is the purpose of my life? And so then all of a sudden we have this huge mental health crisis upon us. And certainly it has mm -hmm. something to do with, you know, these, uh, the prominence of technology and, and like the Instagrams yeah. of the world and how that's leading to a sense of relative comparison. And, but I think the thing that's underlying all that is this basic question of, well, m my survival is accounted for. I will not die. So what the hell is the point of everything? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you pointed me to this, uh, something that George Bernard Shaw said, you know, you don't find the meaning of life, you create it. Um, and you know, I wrote five or 6,000 words, um, on this topic of uh, of purpose, and you know, using the the myth of the the Grail, the, the Grail myth, and using in particular Robert Johnson's uh, uh, book called He, which is um, an examination of the the masculine archetype mm -hmm. through the lens of the Grail myth. Um, and Johnson is uh, <clears throat> kind of was one of the sort of first generation Jungian uh, scholars and uh, students of Jung. And so uh, he's very much a Jungian thinker. <clears throat> uh, point of all that being that um, the grail myth, right? The grail can be taken as the search for purpose, the search for the Holy Grail, the search for the meaning of life. Right. If you can just find the grail, the hidden treasure. Right. I mean, so many things fit that pattern. You know, even alchemy, you know, the transformation of lead into gold is a metaphor for the psychological, for the transcendental moment mm -hmm. of, you know, you could say enlightenment or you could say finding purpose, finding the gold. Right. Um, <clears throat> and. Um, <clears throat> you know, in, in Johnson's reading of the grail myth and in my reading of his reading of the grail myth and in my own interpretation, right, you come to the same conclusion that many, many, many others have as well, which is that it's not the grail, right? It's not reaching this object or... Uh, solving the equation of what is the purpose, right? It's the process of moving towards that mythical object because the object is, is just a symbol. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just something that's out there in front of us. Um, <clears throat> and it, it's the process of moving towards something. Now, as you pointed out, 
you know, just being alive as animals, well, we all used to have a built-in something, which was food, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. stay alive, yeah. right? And with that removed, essentially, then <clears throat> many of us feel the lack of purpose so so deeply, you know, that we become suicidally depressed. We lose the will to live even mm-hmm. because we just don't know, like, why, why even move forward? I don't know what I'm moving towards. So it is an existential, you know, crisis for indiv- on an individual basis. And we're not going to solve you know, the problem of the structure of Western civilization. So what do we do about it on an individual basis? And a big part of the answer is to stop searching for the object, Mm -hmm. right? To stop searching for the the thing, you know, is it going to be a fireman or a biologist or a lawyer, you know, or am I going to have, you know, marry, get married and have two kids. Is that my purpose? Um, it, 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 it's not that. Mm-hmm. It's that it, it, it's the movement finding a way to move yourself to, 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 to motivate you, not motivate yourself. That's not the right way to, that's not, not, not what I'm trying to say. But, you know, understanding that your purpose is to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is to keep moving and that we find along the way, you know, things that interest us and motivate us and serve as, you know, goals along the way, etc. Um, but that movement itself being, as I said earlier, like being myself as much as possible. <clears throat> and there's another piece to that, but that movement itself, you know, being alive making the most of the opportunity of the organism. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> um, now it's still, it's still a little abstract. It's like, okay, yeah, that sounds nice. You know, <laughs> that sounds nice. Uh, but, but how, but how, um, you know, how, <clears throat> how do I get that to feel more, satisfying um or to to feel satisfying at all and the excuse me what um you know whether you look at the grail myth or whether you look at um buddhism and taoism whether you pretty much look at any you know the underpinnings of any spiritual system um even what we were talking about earlier you're talking about working with animals you know, it's about getting outside of the self. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, finding something, attaching yourself atta- to something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And because you do your very initial point about the kind of endless recursion of trying to find, you know, it's like if I try to find purpose in myself, well, I'm only going to find so much, you know, because I'm already alive. So if my purpose is to stay alive, well, you know, that's might not do it for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and a couple thoughts. Um, see, on this big existential question, I actually love uh, to the late great Alan Watts, and one of his mm-hmm. simple ways of expressing it is he said, "You know, life is a dance, mm-hmm. and you dance for the sake of dancing. So just yeah. shut the fuck up and dance." And right, right. <laughs> the purpose of dancing isn't to get to the end of it. Um, and neither is the purpose of life. It's just dance while the music is playing and the music's playing for us right now. And yeah, I could sit there and be thinking about the end of the song, but just dance. So that, that, that's one thought on the sort of Alan Watts's, I guess, response to this big absolute universal question of meaning and purpose, just fucking dance. Um, the second, to make it a bit more practical, and, and I would imagine that you've got quite a few readers in the tech industry like I do, and these are successful, high-functioning folks who are, you know, probably never really failed it much in their life. And here they are, just like I was, you know, head down working, building a career, a reputation, making some money. Um, and then all of a sudden, I you know, I just realized I had this huge, huge existential, existential void, despite the fact that, you know, I was still succeeding and making more money. There was this creeping sense of like, what's the point of it all? And, Mm -hmm. uh, at one point I remember sitting there and thinking like, I don't know what I want at all. And I could feel that existentially despite being in these esteemable positions. And that's when I was listening to another one of Watts's, Alan Watts's uh, lectures. He brought up a simple point. He's like, you you know, chances are you don't know what you want because you already have it. And that's when I realized (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. My meaning and purpose (laughs) for so long was about achievement and attainment and status and Mm -hmm. money. Whether I realized it or not, I was just conditioned to be on that train of Western success. Right. And then I got to a point where I had made money and I was comfortable and I was in higher positions than I ever imagined and blah, blah, blah. And I had Mm -hmm. obtained some arbitrary measure of success that I'd been focused on for the majority of my life. And it's because I obtained it that I felt just this existential vacuum of like, so what's the point? And that's what, Mm -hmm was part of the process of catalyzing me towards leaving the technology industry is because mm. I had obtained the grail and I had obtained it and realized it was a false idol. It wasn't the answer. Yeah. And either I was going to stay with this, with this grail in my hand and make a million bucks a year and, and just shut up and, and do it until I was 50 and basically kick the can down the road and, and then mm-hmm. have to encounter the existential questions. Or I was going to say, no, I'm going to do an about face. I'm going to eject myself from this industry where I no longer feel any sense of purpose. And I'm going to go out and pursue what that is. And wrapping it back up to everything you mentioned earlier, it was like that was so closely attached to identity. So for any of the mm-hmm. tech folks that are listening, I guess the thing I'm saying is if you're feeling that existential void despite the external measures of achievement and success don't beat yourself up about it 
don't be mad. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first thing you need to do is stop and recognize that you've obtained the thing that whether consciously or subconsciously, you are always in pursuit of, mm-hmm. and that you might've realized that other than the practical purposes of your job, paying the bills, it's not contributing to a sense of meaning and purpose anymore. And you may have to pause and ask the question of like, okay, do I want to continue on this journey propelled by that existential angst and realize that part of that may be a pretty radical transformation of my own sense of identity, or do I stay in this holding pattern and most likely just numb out and trying to avoid it? Mm -hmm. The, The number of people I know in tech that are, two bottles of wine a night and, you know, back into their job the next day, making 400 grand a year, you know, like that is entirely in response to an existential void. And I just want folks to know that like, you don't have to stay in that holding pattern. It it may be scary and difficult to consider the Mm -hmm. change, uh, Mm -hmm. but having gone through it and still on that journey, I can tell you it's fucking worth it. Yeah, man. And yes. And, and, you know, just going off of that, I would say a couple of things, you know, one is that, um, you know, I think there's these two, as with so many things that, you know, in, in kind of human consciousness, there's, there's two, two sides, right. That, that, that are in constant interplay and there's the self and there's the, you know, the, the, the X, the, the not self. You know, the rest of the world, as I said, the, you know, um, something larger than ourselves. Um, And, you know, what often, or you're just talking about this hypothetical example, let's say, of, you know, one of our, you know, colleagues, let's say, who's feeling dissatisfied. um, And, you know, it may or may not be that this person, you know, needs to make a 180 degree, you know, change and, and leave their career and do something completely different. It, it might be, I mean, they might, um, but it might be that they just need to cultivate, you know, that they've been, that their entire being is kind of outside of themselves, right. In their job and, you know, whatever, product it is they're trying to create or what you know work all this other stuff and that they that the but their inner self is just this tiny like seed that it's you know it's undeveloped that it's undeveloped right and um you know that by turning some of their energy inwards to the self to a greater just awareness again of we were talking about you know feeling feeling the self, um, you know, that that's a big part of the kind of the sense of satisfaction that, you know, is you is in a way a synonym for, you know, the sort of feeling of having purpose, mm-hmm. right? If I have, again, this was talked about from the beginning, identity and purpose. So if your identity is underdeveloped, put some energy into that. You know, put some energy into that. The other thing um, <clears throat> I would add, you know, is that 
purpose or this kind of external achievement, right, of accomplishment and, you know, income and career goals and, you know, all this sort of thing, you know, it's not, it's not bad. I mean, I, I, I did it too. Um, but there's a refinement. There's a refinement that's more satisfying. Mm -hmm. Or if you find that something that was serving you quite well at one point in your life, like an identity Mm. and a purpose that was serving you well, but maybe it's run its course and it's no longer serving the same purpose. Yeah. Sure. Yes. But that, but I was also going to offer that there's a refinement about of like how to make, because again, the inner and the outer, right. And they go together and we, we need both. We need both. We need the self, the identity, and we also need to attach ourselves to something bigger than ourself. Now, if there's something bigger than ourself is, you know, I want to be SVP of product development at, you know, something, something.com or whatever. Hey, great. You know, that might be awesome. Um, but a way to <clears throat> refine the, um, you know, the value, the meaning of that external side of the equation is, are you doing good for other people? Mm-hmm. And people can include other species, all the other people, all the animal people, the plant people, the earth itself, etc. If you just put that filter on it, right, and again, you can take this from, you know, any philosophy you want. One of my favorites is, is from, you know, Taoist Buddhism, the concept of Ren, R-E-N, which is goodness, essentially. Goodness is not achieved alone. Mm-hmm. If it's only good for me, it's not really good. Goodness is always what benefits the greatest number of people. Again, those people might be elephants. <laughs> okay, it's a very simple filter, and it sounds kind of altruistic, but <clears throat> it's also just true. Mm-hmm. You know, that if you're doing something, if your position as SVP of product management for whatever, you know, is actually really creating real, actual good for a lot of other people, and you have a relatively well developed sense of identity chances are you are going to feel like you have a sense of purpose in the world. Mm -hmm. But if your job is highly paid, you know, um, executive motherfucker uh, or what, you know, that is creating something that is not actually creating real good. Mm -hmm that you are either fooling yourself, you know, or fooling others about into believing that is creating something meaningful and, or your sense of identity is not really very well developed. You're going to feel empty (laughs) and, you know, perhaps catastrophically empty. Um, and, um, you know, those those are the two pieces. The identity go back right back to the beginning. Identity and purpose. And so the sense of self and the you know a moving in the direction 
of doing good for more than just ourselves. Yeah. yeah and I had a uh, conversation with uh, Zach Williams, a podcast chat, um, probably about two months ago. Zach Williams is the son of Robin Williams, the late great mm. actor and performer. And you know, Zach, I really loved his story because yeah, he, he suffered quite a bit observing his father's own illnesses and then eventually the loss of his father, who was, you know, he was mm-hmm. very close with. And so he had, mm-hmm. Zach had hard years following that. But mm-hmm. one of the things that came out of it is when I asked him, I was like, you know, how'd you get through all of it? And what he focused on now and his, his point was simple. He's like, you know, I, I just realized that for me, the answer is, a commitment to a life of service and he's his he's got a new sense of identity that's attached to his daily actions of service to others and so he's a one of the most uh, passionate and involved mental health advocates that i'm aware of and mm-hmm. uh, it's serving him incredibly well and yeah that's what everything you just said it really resonated with me per personally and I just wanted to share that anecdote about uh, the amazing Zach. And, you know, it was one of the things that for me as, a, as somebody who has a very small podcast, I also wanted to be sensitive to that because I, I'd watched other podcasts and, you know, I could see the clickbait titles. It's like, son of Robin Williams, <sighs> you know, right. son of Robin Williams, this. And I just was like, I'm not going to do that because, like, Zach is his own person. Yeah. And I don't want to just you know, get the clicks, like let Zach be who he is and let's, let's hear his story. Um, and so yeah, yeah. Zach's an amazing person. If, if, if I can connect you to at some point, I'll do that. Um, mm, yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's, uh, oh, sorry. Just, so yeah. I just wanted to throw in one, you know, thought on that. And it relates to also to what you just said, right. And I know we're we're gonna we're getting towards the end of our time here, um, which is that, um, right? We hear it put in these terms of like being of service to others. That's just another way to put this. Um, you could call it Ren or, or whatever else. <clears throat> um, it's a way to it, you can use it as a compass, right? If you're as you move through the world, right? If you're wondering, do I go right or left here? You know, well. Can I do some good here for someone other, you know, someone other than myself? Well, that's probably, you're not going to fail or, you know, do wrong by going in that direction. Um, How do we all, you know, be of service? Again, it can sound sort of abstract. Um, But there's a a great book uh, by a woman named Tokapa Turner, this book called Belonging. She says, each of us must find a way to make a contribution of beauty medicine to the world. That's what she calls it, beauty medicine. And in that sentence, she says, we must find a way. The fact is that by being ourselves as much as possible, by doing the thing that you, that comes through you most, 
that is the making of your unique beauty medicine, mm -hmm. right? And so writing, you know, I, I don't, you know, write and, and you know, to uh, get more followers or likes. I mean, of course, we do, you know, <laughs> need you all to like everything that we do. That's how the world works. But, you know, it's not for that. It's because I feel it's good for me and I feel that, you know, it'll be helpful to, you know, to some other people. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the, yeah, the medicine. Yeah. And when I reflect back at it, when I was in my, I was at a venture capital firm at the time and I, I just, you know, this was towards the end of my career in tech and I just had these recurring intuitive sensations or desires to write. Mm. And I kept coming up a bunch. I even spoke with my partners about it. It's like, I, I want to be writing more. And, uh, at the time I was writing in the context of, you know, sort of inside baseball on technology stuff. Sure. And mm -hmm. eh, it was sometimes satisfying, but I could never shake that feeling. And mm -hmm. eventually when I left that world and I separated from it by a few years and that feeling to write that desire to write just kept coming up. And it wasn't until yeah. actually almost one year to the day uh, mm. when I went into a coffee shop here uh, where I currently live with no plans to do any writing whatsoever. Um, but then I received two phone calls that day. One was from mm. an entrepreneur who was going through a lot of professional and personal challenges and he wanted to talk. Mm -hmm. And it turned into a mental health conversation and a wellness conversation. And then mm -hmm. I received another phone call, which was from somebody who I went to high school with, who I'd only spoken to once in 20 years. Yeah. And he reached out and we spoke and it turned into a mental health conversation again. And that's when I sat back down in the coffee shop and I kind of chuckled to myself and I said, okay, universe, I hear you. <laughs> like this feeling of wanting to write about and talk about my story of personal transformation and healing from, uh, psychological wounds. Mm. Uh, and that's when I finally sat down and I, I spat those words out and here we are one year later and it's led to a beautiful connection to folks like yourself and other interesting people and writers and mental health advocates. And it's been a hell of a journey. And mm -hmm. I just want to share that because it, it's what you said around identity and identity, knowing who you are. And then once you know who you are, it, it actually becomes so much easier to feel those little nudges from the universe and the way it's trying to, the direction it's trying to point you in. It becomes so much easier when you get in touch with who you are. And uh, th this conversation today is just a manifestation of that process for me. And it's been awesome. And I appreciate it, Bone. Thank you. Yes, yes, me too, my friend. Absolutely. I, I, uh, yeah, very sim yeah, yeah, a very similar moment there. Um, you know, it's so often the case that that uh, I think that that initial impulse to tell the tell the truth um, to tell the to which is the same as a, as story. You know, a story isn't something made up. I mean, it can be, but you know, your story is the truth of your experience. And telling your story is also that same thing, the making medicine of your story, 
right? It's it's manifesting, <clears throat> excuse me, manifesting the story. It's it's making something another little twist of words, right? It's making art a fact, hmm. making an artifact, hmm. right, of your experience by making it a story that other people can read makes it something that is not just your story anymore, mm. right? It makes it something that other people can digest and, you know, kind of get, get value from. So I have exactly the same experience. I mean, that, that was kind of my inspiration to, or it finally pushed me over the line. Yeah. It, it wasn't in a coffee shop, but uh, <laughs> to, uh, to begin writing was to, you know, begin to tell my own, my own story. Um, and, uh, you know, in my case, it was about, it, you know, how I was a teenage booze hound from the age of, you know, even preteen, you know, from the age of 10 or 11 until, until my forties. Um, and, and not that alcohol is by any means the, you know, the biggest even, or the only part of my story. Um, but it, it was a part and an important, important part. And, uh, so same here. Yeah. Same here. Well, if, uh, for the folks that are listening to this, if you want to give a quick plug, you know, where can folks read more about your story? You know, where would you point them to? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just straight to my Substack, which is my name, bowendwelly.substack.com. Um, and you can find me on all the usual socials and that sort of thing as well. Although they all just point back to my Substack, So that's the place to go. Bowendwelly.substack.com. Right on. And uh, I'm looking forward to to your book. I'd love to to give it a read when it's ready. And in the meantime, uh, thank you for a fun conversation. Uh, you've definitely been an inspiration to me as I've been rebuilding my sense of identity and finding a new purpose over the last year or so. So I appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you're doing. And uh, I look forward to next time.